Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, well, it's 6 p.m. I would like to officially kick this uh, Wednesday night networking off. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, appreciate everybody's attendance here. Um, the reason we're doing this this year is uh, a lot of the conferences, obviously, with the uh, 2020 factor, uh, conferences and seminars you can attend nowadays aren't very personal. Uh, they're just Zoom meetings, you know, similar to this, but there's no networking involved. And, uh, you know, most of my education over the last 20 years has come from the networking and the conferences and seminars that I go to and meeting the people and talking to them. So that's why we've started this Wednesday night networking. Um, treat this like you're at a conference and you're sitting around the table at a break. Okay. Uh, right now, there are 87 people sitting at your table. So you're welcome to chat to any one of them. If there's a comment or a, you know, a, a statement on there or somebody that's close to you or you know, maybe they run the same type of animals as you, uh, don't be afraid to private message them on here. That's what this is for. We're already getting reports back from people about how they're making connections through this. And you know, one farm got an intern that really wants to learn and you know, things like that are already happening with this. So I'm really excited about that because that's an important part of the networking uh, season. And that's not happening this year because of our 2020 factor. So let's uh, um, make, make good use out of this. If there's somebody of interest in there, please, please talk to them. Oh, somebody commented on my shirt already. I had to wear my dung beetle shirt today, just so everybody knows. Very important because uh, I've actually been, for many, many years, I've been known as the dung beetle guy. Okay, and I don't know very much about dung beetles, right? I'm not an entomologist, but I show pictures of dung beetles, so I end up being the dung beetle guy. Well, tonight I'm going to introduce to you my dung beetle guy. So the dung beetle guy's dung beetle guy. If I have a question about dung beetles, I've sent, you know, quite a few emails to Dr. Float over the years here, and he's identified dung beetles, which I don't remember their names anyway, but at least I knew they were a dung beetle. Um, I remember one he corrected me on. I thought it was a dung beetle, and it was actually a water beetle. So um, some important things. Uh, everybody needs somebody smarter than them. So that's who I brought on here tonight. Uh, Dr. Kevin Floats, uh, entomologist and a researcher with the Leftbridge Research Center. So he's done lots of work on um, dung beetles and the, I guess the, the, the pesticides and things that we use, the porons, and done a lot of research on those things. So if you have any questions for him on that tonight, by all means, we're going to we're going to take advantage of his knowledge here tonight. So a uh, little bit of an intro, I guess, uh, like to thank the Gateway Research Organization for putting this on. They're our host. They use our, uh, we're using their platform here and uh, they're an applied research association out of Westlock. So there's about 13 applied researches uh, associations or forge associations across the province. Another one of the research associations is actually Empera and Lance, who's our host tonight, give a wave Lance. Um, he's from Enpera, so the North Peace uh, Applied Research Association. Did I get that right? And I've actually been up to Enpera a few times, and I really like their setup. They've got a quarter section dedicated to their trials. They've done lots of polyculture work. I was very impressed with the polyculture work when I was out there. Get a hold of them. These applied research associations, so Grow and Enpera, they're not-for-profit organizations. They're farmer-led research. Um, a, a board of volunteer farmers are directing the, you know, where they where these guys go. It's a great opportunity, and uh, I know there's other provinces and other, you know, the states have different organizations similar to that. By all means, become a, a member. Uh, even better, become a director and you know help guide the direction of them. It's a fantastic opportunity. 
Um, I've been involved with Grow and Erica, which is an umbrella group above them, um, for over 20 years. And I just can't, I can't let you know, emphasize enough the amount of education and knowledge I've gained from groups like that. So, uh, by all means, get involved with them. And uh, from there, I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Kevin Float. Um, I'm going to let him do a little bit more about himself. But we're going to talk about uh, digging in the dung tonight. And, you know, some of the, the chemicals we use and the, the different uh, aspects of all the organisms and critters and, you know, not just dung beetles, but uh, other critters in there, too. That's where we're going to start with. We might not end there. Just to warn you, Dr. Float, sometimes we go off on a tangent here, so that's okay. But uh, I'll bring you Dr. Kevin Float. Well, uh, hello, everyone. It's really nice to see everyone from, uh, well, from the U.S. as, as well as Eastern Canada. I'm a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. I've been in Lethbridge for almost 30 years, and for most of that time, I've been studying dung insects and the effects of parasiticides applied to cattle, um, the effect of those residues in dung, on dung insects. But I also have projects on cutworms, on uh, beneficial beetles in agricultural fields. And in fact, I started my career in wheat fields out near Tisdale and Aylsham and, and Nipawin in, in northern Saskatchewan. So I consider myself a a prairie kid. It is true that I spent a lot of time looking at dung. Um, I've heard pretty much all the dung jokes, but if you think I haven't heard one, bring it on. And I'm here to answer any questions that you have about dung insects, dung beetles, dung flies, other types of insects. I'm all yours for the next hour and a half and longer, if you wish. Excellent. So um, I've been... Uh you know, digging through poop for a long time, you know, 20 years ago, I started taking videos of dung pats and uh, everybody thought I was nuts. But the, the fact that we have this biological activity that's decomposing the manure, it's just a, a part of it, right? The biology that we need to work in our whole systems includes the earthworms and the, the bacteria and the fungus and everything else. The, the thing is with uh, dung beetles, they're very easy to take a picture of, right? So they're very, very easy to monitor. And if you don't have them, then there's probably something that's causing, uh, you know, that's not conducive to their environment. So uh, years for years, people have asked me, well, can we buy any? Can we buy some dung beetles? And I've always said, yeah, there's a new profit center for me. I could uh, put a, you know, a, a 13 dung beetles in a jar, right? Because you got to do a baker's dozen. You got to give an extra one and uh, put, you know, sell them for a buck a jar. And on the, on the bottle, I would write instructions, uh, uh, release dung beetles prior to grazing. And then three days after grazing, inspect dung pads. And everybody would be like, wow, it's working. They're all there. Well, no, it's not really working because you probably didn't know they were there in the first place because you never dug in the poop before. Um, I've never been to a farm where I haven't found some dung beetles. Usually there's not very many because they're, uh, you know, depending on the practices that we use, the, you know, the products or the chemicals that we're using out there is sometimes can be very detrimental to them. But uh, there's been farms I've been to that they have way more dung beetles than I've ever seen. Right. I remember going through uh, a tour south, south of Saskatoon through Saskatchewan. Oh, my goodness. There was 100, uh, you know, 200 dung beetles in every dung pad. And they didn't even know they had any. Uh, it depends on the environment. If you bring them in and your environment's not suitable for them, they will die off, right? So what you need to do is create an environment that's suitable for them, and they will come because uh, dung beetles fly, right? They're mobile. They'll, uh, you might think there's <laughs> flies out there, and you got to go get the back rubber and the fly tags. No, careful what you're treating for because they could be dung beetles. 
Lance, do you got any questions started yes. yet? Yes. Yeah. So Karen writes, uh, can you talk about the species of dung beetle in Alberta? So I think that's an excellent question. And it's important to realize that the beetles that we have in Alberta are going to be somewhat different than what you might have out in Quebec or further south in, in Tennessee and North Carolina. So in Alberta, we have about 15 common species of dung beetles. Most of them came over with European settlers. So they're all introduced. We do have a couple of native ones that were associated with uh, buffalo, but by and large, most of them are European ones. And I'm gonna to have to get a, a bit of background here. There's three types of dung beetles. So there's many species, but they fall into one of three categories. Uh, the first category are dwellers, and that's what we mainly have in Alberta. And they are species that lay their eggs in the pie where it sits on the ground. And the egg hatches, produces a little beetle grub, and that little beetle grub will feed inside the pie for oh, probably, um, say, four to six weeks. And then it will become a new adult beetle in the fall. The second category are the tunnelers, and these are beetles where the adult will come into the fresh pie, and they will rip apart the pie, and they'll get a little piece of dung, and they bury that underground. And they'll lay an egg beside the buried dung, and when the egg hatches, the beetle grub feeds on the buried manure, becomes a new adult and emerges from the soil again, probably in the fall. And the third type are the rollers. And these are the ones you'll see on the uh, Discovery Channel, right? They show pictures out of Africa with these dung beetles rolling balls of poop. We actually have those here in Southern Alberta. And um, they will arrive at a fresh cow pie and the, the male and female beetle will remove a piece of, of dung they roll it into a ball and they roll it maybe a few meters away from where the pie was deposited and then they bury it and lay an egg beside the buried manure which um, will hatch into a beetle grub the grub feeds in the buried manure and emerges in the fall as an adult but the, the main point is that the dwellers because it's the larvae feeding inside the pie over the course of maybe four to six weeks the dwellers which we have mainly in southern alberta it takes them a long time to break up a cow pie. But for the rollers and the tunnelers, it's the adult beetle that comes into the fresh pie that's ripping apart the pie. Uh, those are the ones we like to have in large numbers, and they can rip apart a pie within a few days if there's enough of them. We don't have as many of those in Alberta. If you go further south in warmer climates, um, Arizona, um, Tennessee, Texas, they tend to have more of the rollers and the tunnelers than we do in Canada. I hope that answers uh, your question about dung beetle species in Alberta. Yeah, excellent, Kevin. Um, I'd love, like to add to that. Uh, I would love to see more tunnelers. I know I'm not ever going to get rollers. Uh, rollers are like the glory boys. They get all the videos and uh, they're, they're the famous ones. But um, our dwellers don't do near as much. Uh, the tunnelers, right, they help with infiltration. They, they, bury, they take them, the nutrients down and put that ball of manure down underneath the ground. And then the larvae only eats like, uh, you know, a third to two thirds of it. The rest gets left down there in the in deep root zone. So I'd love to see more tunnelers moving up into our area. We have very limited number of tunnelers just because of our weather. But uh, okay, Lance, go ahead with the next one. Yeah, next one. Uh, this one is from Blue Settle Campbell. Uh, when treating for a, pet, for a pest like liver fluke with either injectable or poron, how long can you expect the manure to carry residual pesticide? Well, that's a really important question. I have a pretty good answer. Um, we did a lot of work on this, specifically with ivermectin, which was the first of the uh, macrocyclic lactone products on the market back in the early 1980s. 
So if you treat an animal with a recommended dose of ivermectin injectable, you get residues being excreted for probably three to four months. It's a long time. But I want to emphasize that the level of residue is only toxic to dung beetles for probably about the first three weeks after treatment. And then for other types of insects that are more sensitive to the residue, their numbers might be suppressed in dung that's been deposited by cattle treated three to four months previously. So I'll say that again. If you treat your cow in spring, the fresh manure that it's dropping on your pasture maybe in uh, July is still going to have residues in it toxic to some insects, mainly flies. You get the same pattern with the poron formulation as well. And it depends a little bit on the product. So you have ivermectin, eprinomectin, doramectin, moxidectin, that whole class of chemical. Mm-hmm. Moxidectin tends to be um, less toxic to dung breeding insects, but it might be less effective for controlling target species as well. So you sort of have to, um, to balance. And then there's a new product we're looking at right now called um, long range eprinomectin that just hit the market a couple of years ago. And normally when you treat an animal, most of the residue comes out in a pulse within the first, say, three to seven days, and then it drops off really quick. With long range, it produces a double peak of residue. Uh, the first peak comes out probably about the first three to seven days, and then there's a secondary smaller peak at about 100 days after treatment. So it has a much longer period of effect compared to, say, a porn formulation on dung insects. I'm just wondering, um... If you have any uh, follow-up research on how long residues can be found, so we haven't used uh, ivermectin for probably 20 years or more, could you expect to find residue after that? So does it hang around in the field after afterwards? Yeah, so everything I've read indicates that ivermectin and related products, the active ingredient will bind to the fiber in the dung. And then once the bacteria start to infiltrate the, the cow pie, it'll break down within a few few weeks. It'll start to break down very quickly. So you won't have it over winter, typically. And the other thing I should mention is that all the residues captured in the cow pie, right? And the cow pie is only gonna be colonized by insects when the pie is relatively fresh. So within the first, after about a week to two weeks, there's not a lot of new insects coming into that cow pie. So any residues in an old pie wouldn't hurt insects anyway, because no new insects are coming into that pie. I guess then we've got uh, bacteria and fungus that are going to start decomposing that after that, if there's whatever's left over. What about uh, birds that are picking through the insects? That's a really good question. When we set up our experiments, we have cow pies that we form by hand and put them out in the field. And then we have to cover those cow pies with chicken wire hats or cages, because the damn pigeons will come in. And depending on what the cows have been eating, if they've been eating silage, then the birds come in and start pulling out the barley seeds, right? Or you'll have um, grackles or magpies digging in the pie and they will pull out beetle grubs. Or sometimes you'll have mice come in. And I'm not sure what they find interesting about a cow pie. But if we don't protect the pies from these larger insects, or, or sorry, larger animals, we can't do our experiments because we're just interested in insects on decomposition. So yeah, yeah then- other animals. And then there's a whole nother set of decomposers that come in after that. So um, on our ranch as a custom grazing operation, one of the 
one of the lines in our contract is that you're not allowed to use any chemical control on on the animals uh, up to four months prior to entry to our pasture. So basically, if you if you treated them last fall, I'm okay with that because you know four months is over and and uh, I think that most of that chemical is out of them. But I definitely do not want animals treated in the spring coming onto my pastures because I really think I can see the difference in the dung pads, right? The dung beetles don't show up. Um, I've had uh, customers that cheat, right? And I can tell. I know that they've treated because my dung pads are dead for the whole summer. So um, that's uh, one of the one of the lines right in my contract with them. So uh, this is Ted in uh, Georgia. I have a question. Um, uh, with rotational grazing um, and bringing chickens in behind the cattle uh, four days after um, uh, to work on a, a permaculture system, um, how does that affect uh, the, uh, the the chickens? So I think that's a great idea, by the way, <laughs> uh, feeding your chickens that way. I don't think ivermectin accumulates in the beetles. So, for example, if you have an adult beetle coming in to lay its egg in a fresh cow pie, and then three or four day, days after, you have maybe chickens in the pasture. If they eat the adult beetle, they won't be picking up ivermectin residues. If the chickens were foraging in a cow pie, and maybe there are beetle grubs feeding in the pie after about you know three three weeks or four weeks, there's really no evidence that the, the residues accumulate in the beetle grubs either. So I think it'd probably be fine. Thank you. Lance, do you have another question for yes, us? Yes, yep. Uh, this one's coming from Rob and Chiana Younger. Uh, what's the best way to transition from mild, moderate use of avomectin to none? You may have already answered it. Transitioning. Uh, for, for me, it's kind of a cold turkey thing. Um, we got to get off the downward spiral. Um, you know, from, from my experience is that we've, uh, every time you treat, we're causing... You know, you know, you're causing less uh, biology in, in your soil, right? I, I need the biology in my environment. I need the dung beetles there to decompose the, the dung pad. I want it to break down. As soon as I treat, it's not breaking down anymore, right? So it, it, it's this ripple effect. For me, I just stop. Kevin, will, I'm sure I'll have some other comments here too. But uh, yeah, I just uh, don't want the chemicals on my land, so I don't use any. I'm going to put a little bit of a, a spin on this. I work for the federal government. I'm not advocating for or against use of uh, parasiticides. I think that's up to the producer to make the decision. Um, but Steve, you mentioned something I should bring out. It's a really important point. Most dung beetles, when they come out from overwintering, it's in the springtime that they're colonizing fresh dung. So if you're treating cattle, when you turn them out on pasture with parasiticide, that's probably the worst time to treat cattle with a parasiticide in the spring, because that's when all these beetles have overwintered, they come out, they start looking for a place to lay their eggs. And it's really within that first week after treatment that you have uh, high levels of residue, sufficient to maybe kill some of those uh, beneficial insects. And I wanna bounce back. There was a question earlier that I don't think uh, was answered. How do beetles overwinter? Some of the beetles will overwinter as um, an adult. So in Southern Alberta, we have adult dung beetles flying around uh, as late as early December, so the first week in December. And we might see that same species of dung beetle flying around again in March. So we only have two dung beetle-free months of the year in southern Alberta, January, February. Other dung beetles will overwinter as a grub, and then they complete the development in spring. 
and they emerge a bit later as an adult beetle. Down in the U.S., there are some species that will overwinter in an egg stage. Dwayne Friesen writes, uh, what's the residual for pyrethrin? I, I don't have as much experience with the non-macrocyclic lactones, but other researchers in other countries have studied uh, different types of parasiticides, and most of them produce some type of residue that has uh, at levels toxic to dung insects. To my understanding, uh, the pyrethroids are not as toxic as the microcyclic lactones, but there would still be some sort of an effect. All right, Jay Beyer uh, writes, uh, did we introduce some different dung beetles from the Dakotas years ago? Introduced into Canada? I, I don't know, but to my knowledge, I have no knowledge of that. It is true, however, that there are some species of dung beetles that have been moving north on their own. So in the U.S. in particular, there's a dung beetle species called uh, Anthophagus taurus, and most dung beetles don't have common names. I apologize for that. But some folks down in uh, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, you may know this one. It's also called the, uh, the bullheaded dung beetle. It has horns like a bull. And that has spread from Florida. Uh, now it's on the West Coast in California. It's all the way up now. It might be in Southern Quebec. It hasn't been reported in Canada yet, but it's just across the border in Michigan. So it probably will turn up in Southern Quebec, Southern Ontario. We tried to introduce it into uh, Alberta a few years ago, and we could show that it would breed in Southern Alberta in, in uh, outdoor cages, but it, the birth rate is less than the uh, death rate. So it's dying quicker than it can reproduce in Southern Alberta. So it won't be able to establish here, but other parts of Canada, perhaps. Uh, Kendall writes, are water scavenger beetles considered dung beetles? Uh, that was the issue I had, Kevin. I sent you a picture of that very pretty looking water scavenger beetle and it ended up, it, it wasn't a dung beetle. You know, that is a really, really good question. A lot of people think if there's a beetle in dung, it's a dung beetle. Um, but if you're someone like me who's a bit anal, there's dozens of species of beetles that breed in dung, but only some of them are dung beetles. So other species that breed in dung include what we call water scavenger beetles. So water scavenger beetles, you think, well, they're in water, but there's a group of them that have evolved to colonize fresh dung, which is 80% water on average. So water scavenger beetles are very common in dung and they're predators. They're feeding on the eggs of dung beetles. They're feeding on fly maggots and that sort of thing. There's a group of beetles in dung called um, rove or staphylinid beetles. If you've seen these running around, they look a little bit like an eel in my mind. They're long and snaky and they're very fast. They're also predators. They're eating eggs and uh, fly maggots and that sort of thing. So to answer your question, there are some beetles in the water scavenger group that do breed and feed in cattle dung. Yeah, there's quite a few different beetles that I've found. Um, one of my favorites is actually the hairy rove beetle. He kind of looks like a scorpion and he flies because his, his tail curls up like a scorpion and he hovers like a helicopter and he's just preying on anything that he can eat in there. So if you ever see one of them, that's a good thing. He's a he's a predator force. Okay, Holly Stoltz writes, uh, we've been told cleanup is dung beetle friendly. Is this true? What is the active ingredient for cleanup? I, I, I don't know that name. I'm I'm actually not sure. It just we went to ranching for profit school and they told us that cleanup was okay to use and did not kill off your dung beetle. But 
ever since we've always, we've wondered if that's true. And we bring in yearlings and turn them out to pasture and we always pour them in the spring and then turn them out. So we use pour our cleanup on them. And so I just was curious if, if what we were told was true. I, I don't want to mess around with my computer too much. I'd hate, to, I'd hate to lose the connection. But if one of the audience members can do a Google search for cleanup, an active ingredient, I can give you a better answer. There, there was a question here about diatomaceous earth, which kind of relates to the cleanup question. Diatomaceous earth is um, a granular powder. And they use it not just for um, insects and dung, but for insects and stored grain and that kind of thing. Insects are covered with a, uh, a waxy coat and the, the diatomaceous earth scratches that wax and uh, penetrates through the, uh, the outer skin or the, the cuticle of, of the insect and causes it to dry out. And the idea behind using diatomaceous earth to control uh, internal parasites of cattle and maybe flies that breeding dung, I've never tested it. I don't know if it works. But my brain just tells me how much diatomaceous earth would you have to feed a cow to really get enough of it in their dung uh, to affect fly megas? I have no idea what that would look like. Excuse me, Kevin. Yep. The the active ingredient in that is 5% permethrin permethrin, and 3%. D-I-B-F-L-U-B-E-N-Z-U-R-O-N. So based on that, it's not a macrocyclic lactone. It, it, it's not like a moxidectin, ivermectin, doramectin, neprinomectin. Um, so it's not one of the chemicals that is known to have an effect on dung insects. Permethrin may have a some of but that's a pretty low uh, percentage. And I don't know what that other chemical is but it might not be targeting um, nematodes. So things like ivermectin targets nematodes, insects. Other products that target things like liver fluke, they're not as effective against insects. They have a, a different mode of action. So my guess, it probably is not as toxic to dung beetles as other products would be. Kevin? Uh, the second product uh, will kill lice so if the second product will kill lice, lice are a kind of insect. So that would indicate to me that if there's residues in dung, it would kill insects in dung. But I, I don't know how toxic the residues would be. Okay, next question um, is from Grant. Lice is really my only problem. What are the w- some ways to treat for lice and not harm everything else? Uh, I've started to call cat, call cattle that rub bad. However, it is costly. it's costly to lose those females because of no reason. This might be a chance, Kevin. I've got a a list of things that I've done in the past. There's basically a, a three methods that I I deal with to manage pests of any kind, internals or externals. Um, number one is genetics. Right over the years, we've selected animals. If we've been constantly treating them, we kind of hide the you know the animals that aren't very resistant to to a parasite, and we 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 select genetics from them anyway. If we were to stop using anything then, you know, when I've had a new herd come in and we, we, you know, kind of go cold turkey, some animals get more lice than others, right? If we were over the last 20 years culling out the ones that got more lice, well, our genetics would be improving, right? Honestly, the, you know, humans and any species that humans manipulate are genetically getting worse over time, 
right? So nature always seems to solve those issues. The, nature has species that are getting genetically better every year. So genetics is number one. If we start culling all those ones that had bad lice, then we would have a better herd. Uh, number two is nutrition. Uh, I took a lot of or, uh, a few courses from uh, a lot of very wise people over the years, and one of them was uh, Dr. Gerald Fry. And he talked about how if we're not manipulating or changing the nutrition of the animal, right, getting that herbivore to eat what a herbivore is supposed to eat, then their hormonal system and their immune system will, will be functioning properly. You start throwing things in there that throws their systems out of whack, then yeah, they're going to be you know more prone to get lice or you know their immune system's weak or their hormonal system. Maybe for lice, for example, they're not secreting the oils out of their skin that they need to. Right. So that's, you know, naturally resistant to to lice. If you ever have a lice breakout in your elementary school, right, they'll send home that notice that, hey, there's lice here. You be careful. Uh, don't wash your kid's hair. Right. You want it to get oily so that, the, you know, they, they don't the lice don't want to be in there. They like clean hair. So as those animals, you know, the, the livestock secrete oils out of their skins, that's that's a parasite resistance. And number three is the rotation, right? We start doing a good rotation. We start breaking parasite cycles. So um, it's not necessarily my target is not to treat a symptom. It's to deal with the overlying problem, um, bring in a parasite to get rid of the pest, um, get the immune or the hormonal system strengthened up, or just basically, uh, um, you know, improve the genetics. So basically my, my attack is threefold there, I guess, genetics, nutrition, and a you know, proper rotation. I'm, I'm just enjoying all these questions. Uh, there's a reference to pumpkin pie manure, which I'm, uh, I know what they mean, but I haven't seen that term before. My background is really working with um, insect biology and life history. I've heard things about lice, but I don't consider myself a lice expert. But I believe in, at least uh, in our area, and Steve, please correct me if I'm wrong, lice is mainly a problem for feedlot cattle. Is that correct? Cow, calf as well. In the wintertime, you'll get, uh, yeah. you know, lice will come in. Um, there's other things that I can add to that later, but I'll, I'll let you continue to, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's mainly a problem for the wintertime, uh, at least in our area. All right, next question. Uh, Jack writes, can we create an ivermectant-resistant uh, dung beetle? We're kind of doing it anyway. Whenever we apply an insecticide against a target species, uh, usually the insecticide loses its um, control ability within five to 10 years. So we're, we call it a pesticide treadmill, right? We keep having to invent new products because the old products don't work as well. Dung beetles have typically one generation a year and it takes many generations to build up resistance. So for something like, um, Lice, for example, there's already reports of uh, ivermectin resistance to lice, uh, ivermectin resistance to nematodes. Organisms with many generations in a year, they build up resistance more quickly. With time, probably uh, we will see some development of resistance to ivermectin and similar products in dung beetles. But by the time we see that, there'll be a new product on the market. And we're always playing catch up. Brock writes, is evergreen pro-toxic to dung beetles if, if run through an easy way oiler cattle rubber? Evergreen. Have you heard of that before? Must be a trade name. You'd, you'd have to let uh, Kevin know what the product is in, in it. I, I was actually thinking as a side note from that, um, evergreen trees. I've found in the past when I've had a herd in the wintertime, where they have access to evergreen trees, like spruce trees or fir trees, um, they don't get lice. 
I don't know why they, you know, the going there is it the sap off the bark? Is it the, the, you know, the acidity of the needles? But uh, I had an experiment one year. I had a herd on pasture, moved one part of the herd to a, you know, another pasture where they had some dormant grass. So very low quality feed, but they had a whole bunch of spruce trees and the other herd came or the rest of the herd came home and got, uh, started bale grazing. The bale grazing herd started getting lice like crazy. And they, you know, they were all together two weeks ago and the entire winter that they were at the spruce, spruce trees, the other part of the herd never got a single bit of lice. So, and I've heard other people over the years say that too, that, yeah, they don't have a, a lice problem because they're, the, the cattle have access to spruce trees all the time. So uh, have you ever heard anything about that, Kevin? I haven't. I, you know, I, I know that evergreen trees have certain uh, uh, compounds in the needles. Uh, I think we all know that. Uh, maybe there's some effect of those compounds and the cattle are picking it up somehow. Yeah, so I don't know about that product, though. So you'd have to get the actual uh, active ingredient in it. Uh, next question. Shorty Fenske writes, uh, would there be a link that would have pictures of the dweller dung beetle in Alberta, preferably dung, dung beetle that live around Edmonton? There is. Steve, can I send that to you? And can you send it out later? I actually already shared it. Um, while Kevin was speaking about 15 minutes ago, I went in and shared a whole bunch of pictures and information. And it's actually, I think, one of his pictures of all the different dung beetles in Alberta. It's on my Facebook page. Uh, go to Greener Pastures Ranching. You can do it right now if you want. And I linked a bunch. Of, there's a couple of jokes I put in there, too, for you. So. All right. Next question. Uh, King Clan. So how do we treat for parasites and lice then if, we're, uh, if we aren't using these products? You want to tackle that one, Kevin? So, again... I, I see my role as a researcher is to let people know the consequences of treating good and bad. Uh, but I can't make a decision for an individual on whether they wish to treat or not. I think everyone has to approach that from their own per, uh, perspective. So I guess the question is, how do we control these uh, parasites and pests without use of chemicals? And, and maybe, Steve, you have some insight on that. Yeah, I can answer that one. See, I don't work for anybody. I can be blunt. Um, basically, there's some shortcuts, right? I mean, if you just stop cold turkey, yes, you might be in for a wreck, right? Your animals are genetically selected over the last 30 years. They don't have any resistance to parasite. If you stopped cold turkey, um, yeah, you might be in a wreck. And my advice, if you're going to do that, do that in 2015. Because 2015, the prices were through the roof, right? You're going to have a lot of culls. So, you know, do that on a good year, not on a bad year. So when you sell your culls, you're getting some money out of them. Um, but as a side note, I've, I've stopped cold turkey before and all of a sudden we get a lice breakout or, or an issue happen. A um, couple of things that I've used in the past, um, probably my most successful is a product from Watkins. It's a Watkins, uh, it's not the degreaser, the regular uh, cleaner, Watkins organic cleaner. Um, I mix that up in a 2% solution and you spray it on their backs. Now, this is not a, a systemic, so it doesn't soak into their skin and go through their blood system and get everybody, you know, that's the advantage of the porons. Um, so this has is on contact only. And it's got the, one of those little hands on the, on the bottle that uh, with the little skeleton. So it is corrosive, but at a 2% solution, not bad. It just kills the fly. Like I've seen it kill flies on contact. But if we've got a lice problem, I'll run them through the chute and I'll spray that all over them. You kind of all, you know, 
up the sides and all over. If they're going through the squeeze, I mean, if you've ever done it with me, you'll hear the joke many times about how they're getting a little, uh, don't get, don't get all in a lather because they get bubbles all down their side and stuff. Basically you're giving them a bit of a bath and that has done it. Now be careful not to put too much on one, one spring I had a little calf get sick. It's probably, you know, late June, it was fairly warm and he was sick and I treated him. And then I looked under, I think I lifted up his legs or something and he had fly larvae all over him, right? The, the flies were laying cause he was pretty sick. So I thought, Oh, I can fix him up. And I put, you know, some, uh, Watkins soap mix all over him. I sprayed him pretty good cause I wanted to help him out. Well, it, uh, kind of burned some of the hair off his skin. It was a little too thick. <laughs> so he, that little calf was kind of had some bald spots for the summer, but just be careful. You know, the 2% solution I've found is kind of a, uh, you know, that that's not too much, but it'll definitely kill lice and on contact. So problem is you'll have to do it two weeks again, later again. So you spray it this two weeks later and get the second generation coming. Cause there's a two week, uh, um, breeding period for them. Uh, another one that people have tried is, uh, uh sulfur powder. You pour sulfur powder all over them. Um, little heads up with that. It does sting your eyes. Um, I was told to wear a, a face protector so that I don't breathe it in because I'm sure it's hard on your lungs too. Same as diatomaceous earth can be very hard on your lungs. So make sure you protect it. Mm. But the the sulfur powder too, it got in my eyes and it didn't really bother me when we were outside because this was in November and it was cold out. As soon as I walked in the house, my eyes started to burn. So be careful. You're, you know, you're spreading that stuff around the cows too. That could be hurting their eyes too, but it just seemed to <laughs> hurt when it uh, warmed up. So those are the two things that I've tried. Um, the Watkins soap mix, I, I visually think it worked. Um, the uh, sulfur powder, I'm not sure. I, it was a, an experiment one of my customers wanted to do, and I don't know if it worked that well or not, but a couple of things to, to try. Okay, next question. Uh, Tim writes, a description of ideal environment for beetles. I think you might have mentioned that in your intro, but uh, yeah. Uh, ideal environment. We could describe that a little bit, Kevin. I, I think so. Where to begin? So rollers, for example, which we like to have rollers, and there are a couple of native species in southern Alberta and Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Uh, where I find them in Alberta usually is on the sandier soils. So in the Tabor area, uh, near Medicine Hat, uh, Purple Springs, Grassy Lake, that kind of area where it's really sandy. We don't find too many rollers in Lethbridge where our soils have clay. For things like tunnelers, uh, we have a European species of tunneler, which is really common. Uh, we do find that in heavy clay soils. It seems to have a greater ability to make use of whatever soil is available. For things like the dwellers, they don't really develop in soil at all. They just sit uh, in the pie. Uh, they're not affected by soil type. If you have native grassland, native pasture, if you have a species of beetle that uh, overwinters underground, and you're tilling your soil, it's not very good for those beetles. So undisturbed soils are probably gonna be better for your beetle populations. Those are some areas to start. And I guess it depends on how cold it gets in the winter time. In our, our area, so Steve, for example, we were talking about temperatures in your area the last couple of days. You can get down to uh, say minus 30, minus 35. But if you go you know, six inches or 15 centimeters under the ground, it actually stays quite a bit warmer unless you have a really long cold spell, and then it's a problem. And I think that's partly why you have more rollers and tunnelers as you go further south into the U.S., uh, Florida, Tennessee, Texas, whereas in Canada, we have more dwellers, which are more cold-tolerant species. I think we can add to that, too, with our management, because if we leave lots of residue, 
right? Uh, some extra grass to hold on to snow, then our frost doesn't go so deep. Okay, so we we can we can improve the environment for our species to survive if we have good you know management with regenerative grazing. Um, the other thing that I noticed one year, it, I think it depends on the diet that the cattle are eating. Um, one spring I was out uh, calving a herd early. We we're in April calving, so I was pretty well feeding the animals. They were getting hay and a little bit of straw as, as a as a diet and the dung beetles were starting to come out. You could, you know, I could see a few of them. I was all excited. I took some pictures and I actually had a, uh, two heifers, their calves snuck under a fence. And I thought, Oh, whatever the calves got out, then no big deal. They'll come back. Well, the next day I got down there and the two heifers had jumped the fence. It was only a one wire electric. And, uh, so these two heifers were out there. I thought, well, I'll wait and leave them out there. It'll be a lot easier to bring them in when I'm feeding. That way, the other, you know, if I open the gate, the whole herd doesn't run out into that nice, fresh green grass that's growing because it was, you know, two inches tall and they'd had where they were feeding them. They, of course, had all the grass grazed to nothing. Well, the next day I fed them and uh, went out and opened the gate and walked out there and tried to get these two heifers around. And I just noticed a couple of the dung pats out there. There was hundreds of dung beetles in it compared to right across the fence. There was, you know, four or five I could probably find in a dung pad. So they obviously really like that fresh green grass dung way better than the, you know, it was good quality hay. There's nothing wrong with the hay, but just wasn't as moisture, wasn't something. But boy, did I ever notice a difference right across the fence just because those two actually escaped on me. So um, quality of nutrition. So if you're doing a good rotational grazing and you're moving your animals every, you know, every day or every couple of days, you're going to have a lot higher quality nutrition. I think that's going to bring in, you know, a, a more desirable environment for your dung beetles, right? They'll leave your neighbor's field and come to your field if yours is nicer. So I'm going to fence in my dung beetles just because I got better, better forage. All right. Next question. Uh, CB writes uh, suggestions for dung beetle safe fly zone or control. So fly control to me, that's uh, more of a predator issue than anything else. Um, I actually want flies in my pasture. Flies are a good thing because the fly larvae comes in and they're actually decomposing my manure, right? You dig through the manure, there's fly larvae in there. They're eating manure, which is I want it to be recycled. To me, that's a good thing. But now I don't want the adult fly or too many of them. I need some. So what I do then is I encourage uh, um, predators. So dragonflies, spiders, uh, hairy rove beetle, right? Uh, birds, uh, cowbirds come in and start picking through my uh, we talked earlier about chickens following a herd. I got thousands of cowbirds following, so I don't need chickens behind my herds because they are, you know, the cowbirds are already there. Flies are not an issue to me. I want the larvae. I want them to decompose my manure. I just need predators to come in and deal with the flies. So that's a whole nother game of, of trying to, you know, build riparian areas to get, uh, you know, dragonfly hatchings. Uh, dragonflies are really important to me because they actually. They're aquatic nymph stage, so that's uh, they're a water bug. They basically swim around your riparian areas. You got to take care of that. Make sure there's no you know excess fertilizer and chemical residues going in there. You don't want the cattle going there in there stepping on it and muddying it all up, because these aquatic nymphs need to survive. And some of the species actually take up to you know two to four years as an aquatic nymph to become an adult, and then as an adult, they're only an adult for two weeks. Which is crazy. Like they're that's such a long teenager stage compared to their their adult stage. So I need to protect those riparian areas. I had these great hatchings of uh, adult dragonflies all summer long. I you could walk around my pasture just about any time and you'll see you know you could probably count a hundred dragonflies flying around. 
So I don't have very many fly issues because I've got a good, healthy uh, set of predators out there that are, are dealing with it. Uh, bats, spiders, uh, dragonflies, hairy rove beetles, red velvet mite. There's all sorts of these critters are out there that are predators that deal with flies. So yeah, I don't have a fly problem. I wonder if I can add to that just a little bit, depending on where people are. I mean, we've got two countries uh, represented here. I can imagine a situation where a person has a horn fly issue or a face fly issue or maybe a stable fly issue. I, I think those are the flies we're talking about, the pest species. And they usually become a problem midsummer, later in the season. Horn fly in Alberta, for example, might have three or four generations. And each generation, they increase in numbers and become more of a problem. Because dung beetles are really laying their eggs in the springtime when the cows are turned out on pasture. So in Alberta, probably by the time you get to uh, first week in June, most of the dung beetle activity, you're past the peak. But your flies aren't yet a problem. So maybe you can delay. If, if you make the decision to use a, a pesticide, you could treat later in the season after the dung beetle activity is past the peak. And that would sort of be trying to cut that fine line between controlling a pest problem, but still maintaining your beneficial species. Uh, Mark Polson writes, uh, what about insecticide ear tags we put on uh, cattle to keep flies off their face? Will they neg negatively impact the dung beetle or have, they, or have any other negative ecological impacts? You want me to handle that, Steve? Go ahead. I'll do my two cents after. Okay. So any product which kills insects like face flies or horn flies, it's an insecticide. So if residue gets in the dung, it will kill insects in the dung. I mean, that's a given. And uh, a lot of the ear tags, um, the active ingredient gets on the uh, hide of the animal. And just through licking and grooming, they ingest the chemical that gets into the gut and it passes out in the manure. Studies have shown that use of ear tags will introduce um, residues into the dung that will uh, reduce numbers of dung breeding insects. It depends a little bit on the product and, and the concentration of the residue. But you know, in a lot of areas now, and I'd be curious to get feedback from you guys, horn flies, again, in Alberta, three to four generations a year, ear tags have been on the market for, what, 30, 40 years. There are people that say the ear tags don't work anymore. The horn flies are resistant to it. And further south you go, you have more generations of horn flies. So I'd be curious to get feedback on people who are using insecticidal ear tags if they still feel it's doing the job for them. Yeah, my uh, my two cents on that is I, I remember a fellow one time at a conference told me that he didn't like flies, he didn't like mosquitoes, so he actually put a cattle ear tag, a, a parasite control ear tag, on the brim of his hat. Right, mm -hmm. he didn't like it. he didn't want anything around his face, so he put that tag there, and. Uh, Throughout the summer, he, he he didn't put two and two together right away, but he ended up getting migraine headaches every day. And he figured out it was because this uh, ear tag was stuck right in front of his face all day long. So I'm not a real big fan of those. Um, we spend millions and millions of dollars in our industry on controlling flies every year, right? It's just, it's something we do all the time. And honestly, after 20, 30, 40 years of doing this, do we have fewer flies? I bet, I bet your answer is no right? We still have just as many flies. So the definition of, it's, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So we need to change our management, right? Like I said, it's, the, it's a predator, right? I'm after, uh, we put up bat houses, 
right? So that with the bats have a nice place to live so that they can stay in our environment, um, protect riparian areas for dragonflies and spiders and, and uh, you know, all these, all these critters in, in our environment that that's their job. Um, the, uh, the other one is the parasitic wasp. Yeah, parasitic wasp, uh, one example, I think there's 86 different types of parasitic wasps. Uh, one example, I Googled it. I'm not an entomologist, but uh, I Googled it. And it comes in and stings a fly larvae in the cow manure. Okay, so the fly, the fly, manure, fly larvae is eating the manure. The parasitic wasp comes in and stings it and then deposits its larvae inside the fly larvae. Okay, so the parasitic wasp larvae eats the fly larvae and then becomes an adult and flies away. Right, so we have the lar fly larvae eat the manure, which is what I want. Parasitic wasp comes in, and we don't have the adult fly. Predator, problem solved. Now the issue is that the parasitic wasp is more uh, susceptible to chemicals and and you know the the treatments that we do than the fly is. Flies are very resistant. They're as Kevin said earlier, they have a, a very short lifespan, so they have multiple generations in a, in a season, and they can become resistant to something very quickly. Whereas a parasitic wasp, I mean, they're a lot more sensitive to it. So my goal is to keep my parasitic wasps and all my other predators that are out there. So um, yeah, to me, flies are not an issue, right? Flies are our friend. I want them because I want their larvae. I just need predators out there to, to manage them. It's the symptom versus problem, okay? the fly. If there's too many flies, it's a symptom. Obviously, the environment is conducive for their reproduction. So if there's too many of one pest, we need to change the environment so that the, the predators come in and we can balance things out. Our, our whole system is working on a balance. Okay, if something gets out of balance, we have to rebalance it. That's how I try and, and deal with symptoms, trying to look for a problem and balance the whole system. Okay. Uh, George writes, uh, what is the impact of, on beetles if you treat calves at birth, if, they, if they're born on pasture and you repeat, uh, repeat treatment on the calves only at branding in July? I would say still got to be the same thing. You're treating animals with a chemical and it's on the summertime. So it's going out onto the pasture, but uh, Kevin. Yeah. Um, again, I'm an entomologist, uh, not a rancher, but for some of these products, you wouldn't be able to treat the animal at birth, right? You have to wait for them to get to a certain size. I think that's a recommendation for ivermectin. You have to wait till it gets uh, above a certain weight, but uh, keep in mind that dung insect activity is going to be highest in the spring. It'll taper off uh, probably during the hot months of the year, which would be uh, July and August. And then end of August into September, you get a new peak of dung insects. And these are the insects that have become adults from the, lay, from the eggs laid in the springtime. So the eggs are laid in the spring, the new generation of adults emerge in the fall. If you're treating animals uh, mid-summer and the insects are only going to be attracted to fresh dung, there wouldn't be a lot of insect activity in midsummer to be affected by the residues. So you'd still have an effect, but it, the consequences would not be as severe if you treated in the springtime when the cattle were turned out. Yeah, I'd like to add to that, Kevin. Um, step back, maybe. I don't think we said that at the beginning. Um, from what I learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, that I think you just said that, they, they overwinter underground. So most species of dung beetles will overwinter underground. They will have a hatching in the springtime where they become adults, then they lay eggs again. And then for the summer, they're kind of dormant. So when you come to my pasture walk in July, we don't see very many dung beetles. They're not near as active in the summertime as they are in the spring. And then those ones hatch again in the fall, 
so that they can lay another set of eggs so that those eggs can overwinter. Is that correct? Yes and no. So some species of dung beetles will overwinter as eggs, but other dung beetle species will overwinter as adults. These large numbers of dung beetles that we see flying around and say even as late as mid-October, depending on the weather, they will overwinter as an adult beetle. And then they come out when it warms up in the, in the spring and, and fly around and they'll lay an egg in the springtime. And that egg forms a new adult at the end of the season. Cool. So basically some, some have two generations in a season and some only have one generation in a season. In, in Canada, most dung beetles just have one generation a year. So either they go from egg to adult in one year and lay an egg in the fall, or they go from egg and overwinter as an adult and lay an egg in the following spring. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, do dung beetles need moisture to do their job? Normally we see the cow, pie, uh, cow pies gone in 10 to 15 or five to 10 days. Last fall in dry conditions, the top of the pies were untouched, but were full of holes in the ground on the ground side. So I always joke, Kevin, that uh, the adults actually don't necessarily eat the dung. Okay, the larvae, as they, as they grow, they're e actually eating the ball of manure. That's their diet. But the adults, they just go into the dung pad and they suck the yummy milkshake out of it, right? They're, they're drinking the fluids. That's why a dung, or a dung pad looks like it dehydrates. They're just drinking the milkshake. Uh, their diet actually consists of the dead rumen bugs, right? So all the bacteria in the rumen that come out and die, that's what the, the adult dung beetles are eating, or, or most species, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, um, most dung beetles, they feed on the bacteria in, in the fresh dung. Absolutely. The adult beetles, yeah. Just sucking um, the yummy milkshake out of that, eh? <laughs> Just put a straw into there. That's why the holes, they keep putting the straws in there, sucking the, sucking the good stuff out. Well, I'll come back to the question because it's a really good question, but I, got, I just have to take a detour here. One of the really neat things about dung beetle larvae is their hindgut is quite large relative to the size of the larva. And that hindgut has the same function as a rumen in a cow. It has specialized bacteria that produce enzymes which break down lignin and cellulose so they can break down the plant fiber and get nutrients from it. That's for the dung beetle larvae, but the adults, they suck on the, the good stuff. So to answer your question about moisture, it depends on what the cow's eating, but usually moisture levels in fresh dung is anywhere from 75% to maybe just over 80%. Uh, the reference to pumpkin pie manure, which I really like, that would indicate a high level of moisture and the manure is scattered. That would attract a lot of dung insects uh, because once the pat starts to dry, the fresh pat, it starts to form that film. You've probably all seen it. It's like a thin skin. Once that skin starts to form on the fresh pie, it acts as saran wrap to lock in that odor. So there's no smell coming off the pie to attract the beetles. So the hotter it is that day, the quicker that layer forms to trap the odors. And I want to circle around back to these water scavenger beetles, which we talked about a little bit earlier. They're really important because they will literally swim in the surface of the fresh pie. And through their swimming actions, they keep penetrating that little thin skin. So by they keep poking holes in that skin to encourage the release of fresh odors for a longer period of time. So moisture is really important in what insects are attracted, both species as well as the number. And, and now that you got me started, it's your own damn fault. Uh, we did a study where we looked at uh, the effect of diet. We fed the same diet to cows 
and to bison, to buffalo. And we compared what was coming into their pies side by side on a pasture. And we also had a third group of animals, cows. One group was fed on barley silage, one group was fed on um, hay, and then the, the, uh, the bison were fed on hay. And the diet was more important than the source of animal in terms of what was coming into the cow pies. Bison and, and cattle have the same community of dung insects, but the relative abundance of certain species will differ. And that difference is largely driven by differences in their diet, not so much that one's a cow and that one's a buffalo. And bison dung, by the way, tends to come up more desiccated or drier than cattle dung on the same diet. Interesting. So there are different species that have different dung beetles, like sheep have a different dung beetle species that you know degrade their dung. Uh, I saw a little tiny red one on horse manure. Um, so, but bison and cattle are are similar. They have the same same dung beetles. Yeah, they share the same community of dung insects. But you know, even uh, bison and sheep and uh, horse, elk, you will still find some of the same species that are attracted. They're attracted to the smell that comes off the dung, right? And they may get to uh, so so maybe you have a cow dung insect that's attracted to the smell off uh, elk pellets. Once it gets there, it can't use it. It was sort of tricked so that they follow the, the smell. There's been problems where we've had uh, people report dung beetles flying into food operations and they're attracted to odors coming out of the, the air vents in, in the roof of the buildings because the dung beetles just follow a chemical trail. And if it, if it catches their fancy, they'll try and track down the source. Cool. Uh, to, to add to that, you talked about that layer uh, forming on top of a dung pad. In, in a way, that's also a good thing because we're locking in some of that nutrients, right? The smell is actually volatization, right? So we're losing nitrogen into the air. The more it volatizes, the less you have going back into your soil. So that comes back to another thing. We haven't had that question yet, but I'm sure it'll come up is do we harrow our dung pads, right? To me, if you're harrowing, right, you're breaking that up, you're increasing the surface area of that dung pad, you're spreading it all over the place, and you're speeding up the volatization, and you're speeding up the, the runoff, right? As soon as it rains, then all that nutrients is going to get, you know, run off into your water system. So the fact that that, that sealant layer, that saran wrap layer, as Kevin said, um, covers that dung pad, that's a good thing. That holds it in, and then you know the dung beetles and the critters start working it from underground and taking that nutrients down and putting it back into the surface. So, um, you know, harrowing that dung pad, congratulations. Yeah, it's gone, but it's not where you want it, right? It volatizes off into the air and runs off into your water system. Um, I want that dung pad stay there and be physically decomposed. I don't want it to volatize and run off. So uh, just a little addition there. Okay. Uh, so Nisha writes, is there a site that has good photos of all the dung beetles? Kind of similar to the first question there. I did just add that uh, link on my Facebook page if you want to go look. I'm pretty sure that's your uh, picture of all the dung beetles in Alberta that I shared, Kevin. So, Kevin, you got another good spot? I'm just trying to think of, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of our dung beetle species here in Canada and even in the U.S. are originally from Europe. They came over in the past probably 400 years. So if you just type in uh, dung beetles, Canada or dung beetles US and just do a, an image search in Google, you will probably find some excellent pictures without too much trouble. I had an exchange student that uh, he came up and learned about dung beetles from my place and we don't have that many in comparison. He was from uh, Bogota, Colombia. 
And he went back home and he started digging through dung beetles or uh, dung pats. He sent me some really cool pictures of dung beetles, right? Like they've got horns and they're like bright green and neon red or, you know, it's really interesting. So our dung beetles here in Alberta are pretty boring compared to the rest of the world, right? Like the elephant dung beetle, he's, he's huge. He was rolling a ball. I've got a video. You can Google it on, on uh, the internet. I'm sure the ball is about the size of a softball. And he's, it's about this, you know, there's a, a lion's footprint in the sand and he rolls past it and it's as big as the lion's foot. So uh, just imagine how big that dung beetle is. Uh, they're pretty powerful too for their size. They are the strongest critter on the planet. There's some dung beetles that can move 1100 times their own body weight, right? Like that's, that's very impressive. The uh, second place on the planet goes to the leaf cutter ant and they can move 50 times their own body weight. So that's not even close, right? The leaf cutter ants are way in the back. The dung beetles by far the strongest critter. So I just want to circle back to your comment, Steve. I'm glad you brought that up. As I mentioned before, we do have rollers, uh, dung beetle species in Alberta. So to give you an idea how much dung they put in a bowl, somewhere between the size of a nickel and a quarter would be the size of one of their, their dung balls for the big rollers that we have in Southern Alberta. And uh, they work as a pair male and female work together and they might bury perhaps 20 of those over the course of the year. So if you have five pairs of beetles coming into a fresh cow pie, you can see how quickly they can rip it apart. And then I talked about some of the tunnelers that we have. Um, the most common tunneler we have would bury as one ball of manure, maybe something the size of a dime, if that helps give you an idea. And they would bury many of those during their lifespan over the course of the summer. All right, next question is from uh, Grass Whisperer. I'm wondering about manure consistency. It seems uh, high nitrogen or any manure is not as good uh, an attractant or home. Is pumpkin pie manure better? So we kind of answered this, but I want to add to it because I think it's an important point. Uh, the diet of the animal will affect the type of odors that come off. So you may still have the same mixture of chemicals, but the relative abundance of those chemicals differs. So for example, you we talk about um, house fly and stable fly, right? We don't really think about those as being pests on pasture because those types of flies don't do well in a high fiber diet, but they breed very well in a high energy diet like you might feed animals in a feedlot situation. So we find horn flies and face flies on pasture dung and stable flies and uh, house flies, more of a problem for animals that are fed a high energy diet as a silage diet. And that also affects the moisture levels. Usually nitrogen is a good thing if you're an insect because nitrogen is what you use to, to build up your body and to develop. Whereas if you have something like um, plant fiber that the dung beetle larvae would eat, it takes them so long to develop because the diet's not very healthy for them. But things like uh, fly maggots, we talked about fly maggots, a lot of the fly maggot species will eat the bacteria in the dung and the bacteria are very rich in nutrients. And that's partly why flies can develop so quickly and have multiple generations in one year, whereas dung beetles can only get one generation out in a year. It has to do with the quality of the diet and the level of nitrogen in the diet. All right, uh, Sandy Lowry writes, uh, what is ivermectin doing to the rumen and gut bacteria as well as the soil microbes? Whoever, Ask that question must be reading my mind. We actually have a study right now, uh, as best we can under the current pandemic situation, asking that very question. So we don't have any results to report, 
but uh, we actually, in our experiment, we're looking at the bacteria in the rumen of cattle that have been treated with uh, an ivermectin-like product. We're looking at the bacteria in the dung coming from those animals and in the soil beneath the dung from those animals. Now, we would have had results already, but things have sort of been thrown for a loop for the past 10 months or so. So um, all I can say is stay tuned and we'll have a better answer for you. Okay. Uh, next question is from CB. Is it worth buying dung beetles to introduce them? I got a baker's dozen for you if you want. <laughs> if, if, if your environment's not suitable to them now, then buying them, they're just going to come in and die, right? You need to change the environment. You need to change the system. And dung beetles especially, they fly. Um, I'm going to share a video right now. I'm just in the middle of looking for one right now. Um, uh, yeah, they got wings. If you can change the environment, they'll just appear. You don't need to buy them. And if I can add to that, this is a really good question. I get this a lot, and I think it is coming from what goes on in Australia, where they didn't have cattle naturally, so they introduced cattle. And up until that time, all they had were marsupials. And marsupials produce pelleted dung. It's, it's quite dry. It's not very good for the dung beetles needed to break down cattle dung. So when Australians brought in cattle into Australia, they developed a huge program to introduce species of dung beetles better suited to break down cattle dung. Those beetles are now established in different parts of Australia. And there's a market in Australia where ranchers will collect beetles from their area and sell it to a rancher in some other part of the country. So there is a market for it in Australia because of their unusual situation. But Steve, you're absolutely right. Uh, dung beetles are strong flyers. If they can do well in your area, they're either there now or they're making their way there. So my career in Southern Alberta has spanned about 30 years. And in that time we have two species of dung beetles have kind of moved in that weren't here before 30, 40 years ago. One of them is a tunneler. The first report of it in Southern Alberta was in about the early 1960s. It's now incredibly common. And the other one is a dweller. Um, it's probably moved in in the last 20, 25 years. We never saw it 25 years ago, and now it's the second most common species. So if you wanted to buy dung beetles in North America, I'm not sure there's a company that does that. If you, it, hypothetically, if there were a company in the U.S. and you wanted to buy dung beetles to release in Canada, there are international regulations. You have to, I have to wear my Egg Canada hat here. You know, there are certain precautions that must be taken. For example, you would not want to take fresh manure from a ranch in Kentucky with dung beetles and bring it into the Canada because that dung may have bacteria and diseases and parasites that would infest cattle in Canada. Even if you were able to buy dung beetles, there'd have to be very careful protocols if you're going to bring them into the country from another country. Kevin, you're going to damage my new profit center. Come on now. Don't. <laughs> Just tell them one that's already here, Steve. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't think it would I don't think it would work very well. Okay, Grant writes, uh, what are the signs that we don't have a healthy insect population in a pasture? What are the differences between Steve and the neighbors, so to speak? I think it's more of the the dominant predators, right? Um, you'd go around my my farm, you see more you know, birds, you, you see uh, definitely the dragonflies, you start digging through the dung paths, you see insects, you see hairy rove beetles and the red velvet mite and the, the dung beetles and the water beetles. And I think it's just an all around biodiversity uh, difference. I mean, I've got 
uh, you know, thousands of cowbirds that follow around my, my herd. I think that's the, the big difference. When I was a kid years ago, I used to go out and, you know, go through my dad's cattle herd or we'd be feeding them or whatever. And, and I used to laugh because the cowbirds would sit right on their heads. There'd be a cow laying down there. And I remember as a kid, I would try and throw rocks at the cowbirds on the cow's head. Uh, yeah, I was a bad kid. Sorry. It just the way it was. But it was it was funny to me that these cowbirds would sit right on their heads. And then for years, I never saw any cowbirds. And I clued in years later that that's when the chemicals all started. Cowbirds disappeared. And now, you know, 15, more than 15 years ago, I stopped using products altogether. And now I've got these huge flocks of cowbirds again. And uh, the cowbird actually is a kind of a unique critter too. Um, they're a great employee. I, I refer to all the insects and critters on my farm as employees. They work for me. I just got to give them room and board. And then they, you know, they show up in, in flocks and, and, uh, so he's a great employee because they come in and eat all the parasites and, or, uh, the pests and they do a great job for me, but they're a terrible parent. Uh, a cowbird is an, uh, a bleak parasite bird. Um, it actually lays its eggs in other birds' nests. And then other birds actually raise the cowbird as their own. And the cowbird actually hatches earlier and then pushes the other eggs out of the nest. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're terrible parents. They don't even raise their own young. But if you think about it, back in the, you know, before we were here, the herds of bison used to move all the time, right? They were on the roam. They couldn't settle down and have a family. They had to follow the, the food. So they figured out a way. They, you know, evolved and figured out a way to have their offspring, but not actually have to raise them. So, um, Great employee, terrible parent. All right. Next question uh, from Patrick. If you if you apply ivermectin in November, cow dung remains frozen until spring. Is ivermectin still detrimental to beetles come spring? That's a good question, Kevin. I'd like to hear your answer on that one too. Does it freeze and become, you know, does it stay in there? And then in, when it thaws out in the spring, do you get the four months? Or did it actually decompose during it when it was frozen? So this is kind of like a trick question, because remember I said that dung beetles only come into fresh dung. So if that pie was dropped in November, by the time next spring comes around, it's going to be desiccated like a hockey puck. It's not going to attract any insects at all. There will be residues in that dung pat, but the insects won't be exposed to the residue because they're not going to come into feed in that dung pat. They're going to look for a nice, fresh, juicy pat deposited in the springtime. And the ivermectin is broken down by bacterial activity. So if you have a frozen uh, pat with residue, there's no bacterial activity, so nothing's going to break down the residue. Um, by the time spring rolls around, the pat won't be frozen anymore, but it's going to be dry. So there won't be a lot of bacterial activity. So the residue will be present in the dry pat. It will disappear after a while, but it's not going to hurt any insects because the insects aren't attracted to those old pies. So we need to do some experiments on other decomposers of cow patties then. We, you know, there's some bacteria out there that are lytrotrophs, right? They're, they're, uh, they're uh, breaking down pollutants, right? That's what you just explained. Um, but there's a lot of other bacteria out there as well. Is it affecting them? How does it affect the fungus? You know, what about earthworms, right? Those earthworms are going to come up and, and deal with those dried cow patties too, right? They take dry material and, and eat it and break it down and poop it out the back. So, I mean, we need, I guess, more research done on other critters other than insects as well. But uh, uh, any thoughts on that, Kevin? Yeah. Some of the reasons that I do the research I do is to 
help with the registration process for these chemicals. And the chemicals aren't just being registered in North America, they're being registered in Europe and other countries. So in Europe, they're really concerned about their earthworm populations. Earthworms are really important in dung degradation in Europe. So before these products are even licensed for use on the market, they're tested for toxicity against earthworms. And most of the ivermectin-like products have low toxicity to earthworms. So it's really not a concern. Um, in Canada, we don't have a lot of earthworms on our native grassland. Uh, part is because Southern Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, very dry climate. But also, you know, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, we were covered by a sheet of ice and it eradicated whatever native earthworms that we had. So the earthworms that we have now in our urban centers, like in towns and cities, they're all European species that people have brought over. And you'll find earthworms in irrigated fields in, in, in Southern Alberta. And I know some of the viewers here are from Quebec and Southern Ontario, you have earthworms there. But on the prairies, we don't have a lot of earthworms involved in dung degradation. But Steve, coming back to your point, you're right. This talk is focused on insects and dung, but there's other factors that break down dung to get it back into the soil. So earthworms in certain areas, bacterial degradation is really important. The physical action of plants growing up from underneath through the pie, birds foraging in those pies. There was a question we kind of jumped over earlier, I'm just looking at the chat, about harrowing dried dung to break it down. If you do that early enough in the spring, um, before the dung beetles start to fly, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, if you want to break down these hockey pucks like cow patties that have been sitting on your pasture all winter, you can harrow them in early spring before the new bugs start to fly. You're not going to really hurt the insects at all, and it may help control your, your dung problem. Now, it depends with where or when those dung pats were deposited. If those were deposited in the late fall or in the fall or winter, yeah, there's nothing there to decompose them in the cold climate. So yes, they're hockey pucks in, in the spring. But if you're talking about dung pats from last summer that are still there, they're the old gray cow patties, to me, that's that's yeah. not right, right? You yeah. don't have the a healthy environment. Uh, on my property, if dung is there more than a week, that's that's rare, right? We need, we need a healthy, active uh, population of de degraders, right? All, all of them, dung beetles and earthworms and bacteria and fungus and everything. Um, you should have dung pats gone within a week on a healthy environment because they're physically decomposed and gone, right? You don't find them on my property. Um, so depends which ones you're trying to harrow out. If you're trying to harrow out the ones that were deposit deposited there last July, you have another issue to deal with. You need to get this, the system, you know, built up and, and healthy for the degraders. All right. Uh, Kevin writes, uh, does feeding garlic mineral hinder dung beetle activity? Garlic. I haven't done a lot with garlic. We did some with our pigs. Um, we were feeding it to them and we were trying to deal with internal parasites. We were told we did it for a few years. I didn't know if it was really working and we actually stopped this year. And I went just with apple cider vinegar. Um, I've been a big believer in apple cider vinegar for years. And, and so I upped the apple cider vinegar and got rid of the garlic uh, we had the best gains we've ever had on our animals. So I honestly don't know if garlic was doing anything at all, but boy, the apple cider vinegar sure seems to do something for our pigs. Um, we've used apple cider vinegar on cattle before as well. So it's a very popular thing in even human health right now. So the idea is to, to keep your 
somebody can probably correct me here if I'm wrong on this a little bit, but it keeps your, your body in an alkaline state, not an acidic state. I think that's what it is. Uh, uh, changes the pH basically. And then your body is better to fight off parasites and diseases and it's just a healthier system. So um, I'm sure somebody can answer that better than me. Uh, if I have any questions about apple cider vinegar, I go to a site called uh, the vinegarguys.com and they've got all sorts of data in there. Um, we actually order our apple cider vinegar from uh, Ontario and it comes out in the springtime. So not a lot of information on garlic, but uh, um, I, I am a, a fan of apple cider vinegar. Kevin, have you heard any of that? <laughs> um, we haven't tested garlic, but for example, anything which alters the smell coming from the cow pie will alter the number of insects coming into that pie. Uh, for example, we've done comparisons where you take dung from untreated cattle and you put it right next on, on the ground to, to dung from ivermectin-treated cattle. And there's enough of a change in the chemicals coming from those two types of cow pies, ivermectin, no ivermectin, that we can regularly pick up differences in the number of insects. But it's not predictable, right? We can't say that ivermectin-treated cattle will have fewer insects or will have more insects. We've seen both. And it depends a little bit on the level of concentration of residue in the pie and maybe the interaction with whatever else the cow has been eating. So with garlic, I mean, obviously very strong uh, taste and smell. If that influences the chemicals coming off of the dung from that cow, it could affect what insects are flying in. But I don't know if we're bringing more or less. I have no idea. So whose question was that? Do you want to bring your video and audio up? Um, my question is, are you more concerned about the internal parasites in the livestock or are we talking about the insects around the dung after? Because I think we're feeding garlic for, you know, internal parasites, I think. Or is it lice? Why are you feeding garlic? Reduce flies, he says. Okay, so this is going to be garlic emitting from their body, right? They're trying to keep flies off their back, basically. Is that the question? So I guess the smell of garlic. I, I mean, I know the feed company is selling uh, garlic-flavored salt blocks uh, as fly control. So I'm not very experienced at that. But like I said, to me, that's a game where we're trying to address a symptom. I'd rather deal with the problem. I focus on building my environment up so I have predators of the flies. Okay, mm -hmm. it's it's not a quick fix. We we got too many things that in our environment now that are in our industry that come as a, a this quick fix or this magic bullet. Honestly, the answer in my in my book doesn't come in a box, a bag, or a bottle. Okay, it's management. It's dealing with a a whole system and and building that whole balance back into your system. So yeah, I'm not a a big fan of garlic. I'll I might buy the garlic blocks once in a while, but I'm I'm more. Uh, worried about what micronutrients are in my soil or what salt or mineral I buy. All right, next question from Adrian. Would it make sense to only treat the calves with ivermectin and not the cows? That way the beetles still have all the non-treated cow pies to eat from. And that way we don't have to worry about parasites overload on the calves. I can be blunt on that one. I don't treat with anything, but um, you know that's that depends on your system, right? We kind of talked about that already. I try and get all the chemicals out of my, my operation. And that way I can, you know, build the balance back up. I think the more we treat, the more of this downward spiral we go on. I know Kevin's limited on what he can say. He's a government official, so he's got to be polite. 
So it's a good question. Again, if you were to treat all the animals on your pasture like a worst case situation and you treated them in the springtime when dung insects are really flying and active, yeah, you'd, you'd knock down the insects being produced on that pasture uh, during the summer. But you'd have other insects coming in from your neighbor's adjoining pasture unless they've also treated with chemical. It could be a concern. Dung beetles, one generation a year, it takes them a long time to bounce back. Things like pest flies, multiple generations in a year, they would come back fairly quickly uh, from an ivermectin treatment, you know, in the next season. I would say that if you don't have to treat all your animals, don't. But as Steve says, do you have to treat any of your animals? I think you want to be sure that, that there's a real need to treat before you go ahead and make that decision. I guess they always come back to that economic threshold, right? How bad is it and at what point is it worth treating? Not just the cost of the product, right? Like that's come way down. It's way cheaper than it used to be. But what about the environmental cost? The, you know, the fact that we don't, you know, our, our system's out of balance. Um, we don't have the par- the predators coming in. Like it's just this ripple effect that goes on and on through your whole system. The more you do uh, one thing, it affects another thing. Uh, I always try and look at that whole picture and, and building that whole system back up. So, um, yeah, if you've really got a bad one, like there's a few times on my on my pasture in the summertime, right? I'm not, you know, I don't want anybody treating in. And all of a sudden there's a couple of animals in that, you know, herd of yearlings that come in that just, they're going downhill. They're getting skinny and they're, you know, getting worse. Uh, jokingly, I call them, that's dead cow walking, right? There's just something wrong with them. So I'll I'll actually tell my customer, right? There's, there's a couple here or one or two that just aren't doing well. You might as well come get them, right? Take them home. Uh, what's the reason why maybe they got a parasite load. Maybe they're, they're just, you know, they need grain, right? We've got a whole bunch of genetics out there. That's so dependent on grain nowadays that they can't do, you know, they can't do any gains on just grass, take them home, treat them, keep them in a pen, feed them separate and never keep those genetics again. Right. That's my advice. Uh, start cleaning your herd out. And again, do it on a good year because your cull prices are going to be higher. Lance, you got one more question because we're sitting at seven Let's uh, do the last one. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Mike Reamer writes, uh, I try to control flies by dragging the pasture, drying out the pies, more detri- more detrimental than helpful. Um, so the flies will go from egg to adult fly. I, I Mike, I don't know where you're from, but if you're in, in Canada, they'll go from uh, egg to adult fly in probably about uh, three weeks. You'd have to drag your pasture a lot during the summertime to have a really big effect. And I think that level of disruption would probably be more harmful than helpful. I would agree with Kevin on that. Um, one of the things that I learned years ago, the parasite that I'm thinking about right now is internal roundworms. Part of their life cycle is outside the cow in the, in the manure. The eggs go into the manure, they hatch, and they have to be re-ingested into the uh, herbivore or the cow or whatever to you know basically continue their lifespan. So animals naturally avoid their own manure. Okay. A cow will, doesn't want to eat unless you force them. They don't want to eat around their own cow manure, but they will gladly eat around the sheep's manure, right? They'll eat pretty close to it and vice versa. The sheep will eat around the cow manure, but they don't want to eat around their own manure. Um, it's naturally offensive to them, which I don't blame them. Um, but, uh, it's, it's kind of nature's way of not reinfesting the same parasites. Okay, so they're kind of they're they're there unless you force them to you know they're they're hungry enough and they'll go eat it. 
Um, but if you harrow it, now what you do is you break up that dung pad and you spread those eggs over every piece of grass on the pasture. Okay. And now they, you know, they're just grazing, they're going to reinfest those eggs back into their, into their uh, diet and, and it, it's going to continue the cycle. So with a good rotation, right. And we're, we're talking about regenerative grazing. Let's say I've got a rotation with a 45 day rest period, just picking a number out of my head here. Yeah, every, every year is different. Every pasture is a little bit different, but 45 days within 45 days, um, the dung paths are decomposed. They're gone, right? They're the dung beetles and the bacteria and the fungus and everything have decomposed those. The eggs are gone. And when the cattle come back into that pasture 45 days later, the eggs are gone. They don't get reinfested. So we're breaking the parasite cycle um, in comparison to a continuously grazed field where they're, you know, they're out there all the time. And then you harrow it and you spread eggs all over the place. The cattle can't avoid it, right? The eggs get back into their gut. And yeah, it's this continuing spiral of, of parasites. The more you treat, the more the dung pats don't break down. You got to go harrow them. And the more they get reinfested by the, by the parasite. So, you know, it's a, it's a whole system we got to look at. It's not one thing that's going to solve your problem. I think we're going to wrap up the official part of this tonight. Uh, by no means are we kicking you off. This is a networking session. Um, thank you very much for everybody that attended. Uh, this has been way more popular than we ever thought it was going to be. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Float. I really appreciate you being here. You're more than welcome to stick around for a bit and chit chat, but at any moment, uh, don't hesitate. You're welcome to leave. Um, wave your hand and say goodbye. We're, we're so grateful that you've been here tonight. Um, Lance, same thing. Thank you very much for hosting. I uh, appreciate you being here and you did a great job. Uh, just a, a couple of last mentions here about the sponsors, um, Gateway Research Organization and Impera, um, a couple of great research associations that are uh, in our province here. Um, become a member you know, if you've got someone or a group in your area that's similar, a nonprofit that does experiments and extension work, get involved. Um, I just can't say enough about how how good they are. And I guess uh, I didn't mention at the beginning, but I guess Greener Pastures is a sponsor too. Um, this winter, we're not doing very many schools and seminars, but uh, I do have quite a few um, webinar consultings that are going on. So if anybody's interested, we do, you know, grazing consulting, we do... Uh, um, economic consulting. We can look at uh, pasture design and and grazing charts, whatever you guys want. So I'm I'm happy to help with that too. So, but thank you very much to everybody. Kevin, do you have any last uh, uh, last minute things to say to everybody? Well, uh, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, I'm prepared to stay on. I'm in no hurry. I've got nowhere to be. So uh, I'll hang in as long as people have questions. Excellent, awesome. So that's it for tonight. Uh, our now stay tuned for the after networking networking. <laughs> <laughs>